I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, producer Jonah here. Just a reminder that after the guests have gone, the conversation continues on our Twitter, Insta, and Facebook communities. Did you think the guests were charitable? Did you have your mind changed? Find us at Principle of Charity on all platforms where we'd love to hear your thoughts on the episode. Welcome to Principle of Charity. I'm Lloyd Vogelman and I'm here with my cousin and buddy Emil Sherman. We're here to inject some generosity and curiosity back into our conversations. Principle of Charity tells us to seek the truth, not win the fight. To first put aside our own views and try to understand the other viewpoint before we instinctively reject it. Our topic today is, will the rise of artificial intelligence result in a world of low employment? And if so, is that a good thing? Emil, tell us a little bit more. Thanks, Lloyd. Well, technology is hugely productive, as we know, but also hugely disruptive. And since the Industrial Revolution, it has been eating jobs at a furious pace. But luckily, many more new jobs have been created as old ones disappear. So it's a, it's a cycle. There's innovation and some jobs are destroyed, but the economy becomes more productive and grows and new jobs are created, some we never imagined possible. But each time there's a new cycle, we freak out again as a society, thinking that it's going to be the end of jobs as we know it. And it's largely because it's so hard, if not impossible, to imagine a future different to what we know now. But this time with the rise of AI, the fear is there again. And there's reason to think we need to, at the very least, take seriously the prospect of a future where humans go the way of the horse, where our labor is rendered largely useless. Now, even if we end up just part of the way there, this will have a massive impact on society and on our sense of selves, our purpose. So in this podcast, we first touch briefly on the question of whether technology will truly reduce the number of paid jobs out there. But then we take the possibility serious enough to ask the edgiest second question, would that in fact be a good thing? Is paid employment, as we've come to know it, the, the cornerstone of the good life rich with purpose, meaning giving us the feeling of being rewarded for our efforts and our abilities, keeping us out of mischief, and providing the basis for social cohesion? Or are these links really just a a relatively modern invention to keep people working in the wheels of capitalism spinning? Is work, in actual fact, the pain we go through to have leisure? And freed from work, we'd be able to find a greater sense of flourishing, doing whatever we want to do for, for fun, for the good of helping others, or just for its intrinsic value. We've got two great guests with very different opinions to help us explore all of this and more. Who are they, Lloyd? Our two guests today, Emil, are John Daly and Simon Longstaff. John is a leading public policy thinker. He was the chief executive of the Grattan Institute, one of the top domestic policy think tanks in Australia. John received his doctorate in law from Oxford and has 30 years experience in academic government and corporate institutions. Simon Longstaff has been the executive director of the Ethics Center for 30 years, working across business, government, and society. 
and he has a PhD in philosophy from Cambridge. He was made officer of the Order of Australia in 2013. Now, Simon and John are both serious thinkers involved in public policy. John has run a massive think tank and comes with the more mainstream view that jobs will survive AI and just reorganize themselves. And paid work is really the best way to organize society. Simon has a much more radical approach and truly believes that the good life and a good society doesn't need paid employment. Okay, well, let's get our two guests on. Thank you both so much for being here. And so I'd like just the next uh, 15 minutes or so just to focus on will the rise of AI result in a world of low employment? We can discuss whether it's a good thing and meaning and purpose in a second, but let's just start there. I mean, what Simon, what is different this time in your view? Why is it not just we've been here before, disruption, new jobs are created, everyone freaks out, but we're actually going to be fine. What is different? I think I think it's both the completeness and the range right. um, of of its application, which is different. So in the past, it's tended to be the case that innovations in machinery have changed the way in which things to do with manual labour have been done. So you move from human labour to the horse and then on to steam engines and things of that kind. And they're able to do more with the energy, this kind of vast amounts of energy that they can consume and consolidate and do it faster and on a larger scale than any single individual can. But in this case, it's not just that. It's also the kind of intellectual and creative work that human beings have typically done. And so I think what you're going to see in this case is that it's the combination of AI, robotics, uh, biology, synthetic biologies and self-replication and all of these things, the ability for these machines to mimic the various things that nature does itself. So this is uh, a set of natural services, for example, pollination um, being done by robot bees rather than just natural bees and things of that kind. And so what you see in the human sphere is that Lawyers who might have been employed in large numbers doing things like discovery won't be required anymore. And it's already seen this where AI systems are doing that in much larger scales. The accounting profession will be removed. There'll be many of those kinds. So it's the scale of the change that's taking place uh, as much as the precise nature of it, which I think is different in this case, that it's much broader in its things. And then there's that completeness. If you look today at people who are conceiving of building new mines, for example, there'll still be a need to have an extractive um, resources industry. No one is really thinking about building a mine with lots of people in it. Uh, nowadays, virtually everything will be automated from the drilling and blasting uh, to the excavation to the loading, crushing, transportation and eventually shiploading if it's being exported. Every part of that from hit edge to the end will be like that. And I think that's the thing that will happen here too. It'll be automation to that complete degree in areas that we've previously thought to be immune. John, let's come to you now. Of In the end of the day, are there going to be enough jobs for people to do? Well, I think this is something where you do have to take the history seriously because Simon's already given us a lot of examples in which uh, technology has has wiped out very, very large numbers of jobs. And what has happened every time is not that you know we stopped wiping out jobs. What happened every time was that we found new ways to use the surplus labour uh, because things that previously were too expensive because 
you know, in, implicitly the labour costs were too high relative to the alternatives, effectively became affordable. So, you know, one of my favourite examples of this was, you know, 30 years ago, Rupert Murdoch was about the only person in Australia who had a personal trainer. Um, today, everyone's got a personal trainer. Why is that? And the answer is, well, because there's a lot of surplus labour in effect, you know, happened because a number of jobs, not least in the manufacturing sector, disappeared. Uh, being a personal trainer, um, not to say that all of them are low-skilled, but it's a relatively low-skilled job. You don't need lots and lots of training to be a personal trainer. And inherently, it's quite a relational job. So that's something which is particularly hard to automate. The point about a personal trainer in many ways is, if, you know, it's it's not that they know lots more about the right way to lift the medicine ball. It's the fact that they stand next to you and, and encourage you to do it um, that makes the difference. And so lots of people today have personal trainers. And there are any number of jobs like that that we've created at the bottom. And there's also a lot of jobs that we have created in the middle, if you like, in terms of medium level education jobs, as well as more and more at the upper level. And of course, the, the thing that we can observe about the labour force over the long run is that the skill level required for jobs has gradually lifted, not surprisingly, because we've automated things. Um, and by and large, the skill level of the community has lifted with it. Uh, it's worth remembering that, that when I went to university, you know, almost 30 years ago, um, uh, I think about one in eight of the people who left school with me went to university. Today, as my children go to university, it's one in two. Right. And this is a kind of radical shift in terms of education levels, which is effectively mirroring this shift in the world of work. And I think if we look... This is one where you really do need an incredibly persuasive argument about what is different this time because, you know, people were worrying about, um, you know, the destruction of jobs will lead to mass unemployment with the spinning jennies. And that was, of course, um, what drove the, the Luddite movement led, led by Mr Ludd. Let me just push you on one point, John. Looking at the deep future, maybe 10, 20, 30 years, isn't there an end point of AI? The core argument for not worrying too much is not that jobs won't be destroyed. That's been happening sure. for a very long time. The core argument is that you have to believe that jobs won't be created. Jobs won't be created that humans aren't best placed to do. I think it's a two... Because jobs could be created that, you know, we go, okay, great, we've got more demand for whatever and a computer might be able to do it. Absolutely. But, of course, the point about markets and and more than just markets, human society in general, is that people adapt to whatever is needed. You know, inherently, people don't these days try to find jobs, uh, invent new roles, uh, which can be done better by, than by computers. They, they just you know, get computers to do those jobs. They inherently try and find jobs where inherently they're really hard for computers to do. So growth of personal trainers. Uh, and, and of course, what they're doing is perpetually looking for opportunities where there's a role I can play that will be valuable to someone else and which is going to be hard to replicate through a computer as of today. Yep. And then I accept in 30 years' time, maybe, you know, someone will figure out a brilliant robot personal trainer that is much better than any person, and then people will be busy looking for, okay, well, what other role could I do that at the moment is too expensive? But as the implicit price of labour shifts in the future, I can afford Well, maybe 
Because, of course, it's not just the price of labour that falls. It's, in effect, also incomes effectively rise such they can afford to pay people to be personal trainers. With people taking on jobs that AI can't do, some of them will be highly skilled, but many will be lowly skilled, Mm. you know, like the Amazon factory worker who's essentially monitored by and working for AI systems. Now, now I've heard that the percentage of income that goes to labour, you know, to wages, as opposed to the percentage that goes to capital, to to the owners of businesses' profits, has been largely stable for a long time, but that it has shifted substantially in favour of business owners, the capital now. It seems that productivity is more and more coming from machines and not from people. And, you know, I've, I've heard that this can fuel inequality. So at some point, if the spoils of society are not distributed to people based on the value they bring to their work, and it all starts going to the owners of business who, who buy the machines, at some point, doesn't the system itself start to feel illegitimate? So, so I think we need to break this question apart into into two questions. Um, firstly, is the quantity of, in fact, three, one, is the quantity of labour, in fact, falling? Two, is the distribution of that changing? And then what's the breakdown in, and then um, how is that changing inequality? So that first question, which is the quantity of labour, I mean, actually one of the biggest economic puzzles that we have is why the hours worked per capita which is the which is the best measure of that has been bizarrely stable then the second question is well how is that being distributed and as i said overwhelming the evidence is in fact the jobs are becoming less drudge like so no question there are some dreadful drudge like and by and large very badly paid jobs in today's society but it's worth remembering that has always been the case. You know, let's not romanticise sure. medieval times. You know, basically eking out a subsistence existence as a farmer is not a lot of fun. <laughs> and uh, so there, absolutely there are lots of dreadful jobs, but in fact the typical skill level required for a job today we can see has increased. And if you assume, and I don't think it's a dreadful assumption, that the more skill you need to do a job, the more interesting it will be, um, if anything, jobs have become less drudge-like over time. So, so, so you're saying that's a movement across the board, even from the lowest skill work. It's not that there's a barbell of jobs where the top level are more skilled and interesting and the bottom you know, because I wonder about jobs like the taxi drivers, you know, think of the cabbies in England who who have passed the knowledge test and they have to use considerable depth of experience and knowledge to navigate. Now, a lot of that cognitive work's been taken away and you're turned into effectively, you know, uh, following the machine of, of Waze or Google. You, you're saying, generally speaking, the entire workforce has been lifted by AI. So Jeff Borland's done some from the University of Melbourne has done some lovely work on this, basically showing that the education level required for a job has overall increased. And so yeah, there's a big chunk of jobs in the middle, um, uh, and more so in effect than there used to be, um, which is reflected by a very substantial increase in the. Uh, education level of the workforce as a whole, um, obviously not just in Australia but around the world. Now, ironically, of course, as you increase the education level of the workforce, you do get an increasing number of people who say, I'm not using the education I've got. 
Um, so if you look at, well, you know, what percentage say I'm not using the education level I've got, that's gone up over time, but only because the number of people who could potentially say yes to that question has gone up because the education levels overall have gone up. That gap between the jobs that require education and those that don't, you in the Graden Institute thinking about this previously around policy, does that not worry you a little around you know, where that takes our society in terms of inequality, polarisation, more conflict, that gap? So far over the last 15 or 20 years in Australia, we have not seen a substantial increase in the inequality of household incomes. We have seen that in the United States. We have not seen it in Australia. What we have seen in Australia is a big shift in inequality of household incomes after housing costs. But then that is a dead giveaway about where the problem is. <laughs> the problem is that um, housing costs are increasingly unequal in terms of how they've impacted. Basically, housing costs for low-income people and therefore... But you don't relevant. see AI driving that inequality further? I don't think AI has got much to do with housing costs. Well, I tend to agree with John that it's not necessarily the case that the mere emergence of AI, robotics and other technologies will make for a more unequal society. It's the question of how you respond to its emergence that will decide this. Right. And my argument will be is that there's going to be a profound transition in the way our society operates, uh, everything from the number of people in employment who can be taxed, because a major part of our tax base at the moment is from a tax on wages, on labour, if you like, which I don't think there'll be the same thing when more and more is automated. But we could have a just, we could have an orderly transition, in which case you would deliberately arrange your policies to prevent the kind of increase in inequality which you're asking about, Lloyd. A robot tax. Well, it could be that. Yeah, it could be a tax on the means of production mm. and, and which becomes more and more based on AI robotics and other things or right. on profits and things of okay. that kind. But if we don't address it consciously, then I think it does risk unleashing a very deep wave of inequality of a kind which we have seen in other periods in history. And, of course, history, the fact that something happens in the past doesn't guarantee it will happen in the future. But we have seen what led to the French Revolution, which is effectively displaced middle class uh, that becomes activated. It says it's acting in the name of the Sankulot and all the rest, but it's really their interests which are driving it. And I think this time round, we'll see it'll be, again, the middle classes that bear as much of the brunt of change if it is not actively managed in the kind of ways that John Well, that's, that's a good about. point, I think, Simon, to segue to the next question. If technology and AI did enable us to have enough resources and we could distribute those resources as a society in a reasonably just way, in a way that we don't need to work for a living, but essentially... essentially Technology has created a world where there are enough resources for people to have um, to live. Is that a great thing? Of course, it is. Or is that something? Is that something to aim for? Is that something fundamentally something scary? And we better prop up a labour market because otherwise the society is going to, you know, go awry. So, Simon, you first. It could be the most marvelous thing. I mean, we have seen it in history before. Yeah, tell us about the past. Probably what have we seen? Well, well, it involved a pernicious institution called slavery. Yeah. But 
there was a time when all the grubby, nasty work of production was done by slaves. And they supported a society like, for example, the Greek city-state of Athens, in which citizens, the free citizens, lived rich and meaningful lives and engaged in work, but were not employed in the sense that we think about it now. They didn't have a job as such where you had a, a paymaster and away you went. You spent your day going to the courts, going to the legislature, engaging in other things. But most of the kind of the, the work work, you know, the hard work, the things like that were done by those who were enslaved. Now, that the removal of that pernicious institution of slavery was a wonderful achievement, even though it still persists to this day, unfortunately. But I can imagine an enlightened society in which all of the grubby work, all of the difficult things, all of the boring things and all the rest are done by expert systems and robots and other things and that they produce goods and services at the lowest cost and they liberate people as citizens to engage in the kind of work as opposed to the jobs that are the things that really do draw on our human capacities, our ability for imagination, for civic engagement and all of those things. And why wouldn't we aspire to do that? Uh, there may be an element of leisure in this, but purposeful leisure and things like that. So you can imagine that. If you want to take a society which is much closer to our own place, in, this is in geography rather than time, it's the pre-colonised world of Indigenous Australians. Mm. Where again, if you look at the lives that Indigenous people left, the First Nations, they didn't work have a job in the sense of here's someone's going to pay you. They, they, they were in areas where they spent a portion of their day in making a you know provision for what was necessary, food and shelter and things of that kind. But the greater proportion of the day was in things to do with ceremony and law, and creativity and family and a whole lot of other things mm. that were rich and meaningful. So human beings are capable of living rich and meaningful lives working in that, that broader sense in ways that don't require having a job. Now, how do you get there? Well, this is where the economics become so critical because if the national wealth is being generated by the provision of goods and services, including those which are traded, in which the vast majority of that effort is being undertaken by robots and things of that kind, what do you do to make provision for the income that is needed to sustain citizens so that they a, have enough to live on, that they can contribute through their consumption to you know, preserving the economy and all the rest. Where does this money come from? And it's either going to come from taxing the means of production or taxing the inputs that go into the, you know, the, the commons that are used by those seeking profit or some other thing that's either redistributed or you have some other kind of pot of dough which is used to fund the kind of human services, whether it's the personal trainer or the artist or whatever that's there. There'll be a certain premium that people will pay for, as I say, the, the well-designed thing that bears the mark of its maker. But this is the complicated thing that we need to work through. But the idea that we can only sustain a society by having lots of people in traditional employment, that is simply not yeah. true, either in principle or by the evidence of past Well, practice. yeah, I mean, there are lots of, you know, from hunter-gatherer societies to ancient Greece to Victorian aristocrats, uh, um, you know, often it does rely on the labour of someone else. But if it can rely on the labour of uh, robots, then maybe there are good lives. Let, let's come to you, John. I'm just going to quote Bertrand Russell in his very uh, fabulous and, and you know, controversial essay, 
uh, in praise of idleness. The morality of work is the morality of slaves, and the modern world has no need for slavery. John, if we could have a society where resources, there was enough resources created largely by technology, and people didn't need to work in the traditional way, is that a society, and we could distribute it fairly, is that a society worth aiming for, or is that a society you are in terror of? Let me answer that by um, telling a story which some of your listeners may be familiar, but some may not be. There's an economist, a physicist, and an engineer on a desert island, and all they have to eat is a can of baked beans. And uh, the, <laughs> the physicist says, absolutely no problem. Um, we're just going to shoot the thing, you know, 300 is up in the air and it'll kind of hit the rocks on the way down and, and all the beans will splatter everywhere and then we can just collect them up. And the engineer says, well, that's a bit messy. Um, all we have to do is tap the can in exactly the right place and it will just fall apart. But it's going to take me two and a half years to figure out the calculations to figure out where to tap it. And the economist says, no, 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 well, let's just assume we've got a can opener. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think it is very dangerous, the sort of assumption that, we can have something in which resources are very fairly distributed, but nevertheless, we've got lots of opportunities for everybody to do interesting things is actually an assumption I'm not so sure about. Because if you think about the history of, of that we've been talking about, whether it's Victorian times or ancient Athens, um, uh, essentially, uh, all of the privileged people got to do all of the interesting things and all the slaves got to do all of the drudgery. And I don't think that was a coincidence. And the way that we squared that circle historically has been to pay people to do the interesting things. So that nowadays, if you are you know, essentially interested in um, you know, finding out how the world works, you get paid to be an academic. Um, if you are interested in artistic endeavour, in effect, from a large number of artistic endeavours, you get paid to do whatever they might be. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that if you want to distribute those kind of fun jobs, um, then it certainly looks as though it's easier to distribute them amongst your population if you pay people to do them rather than, say, we're going to try and find some way that we have distributed all of the resources so that anyone who's interested in being an academic can kind of do lots of academic things. So that's kind of one objection I have to it, which is I'm just not sure how you would make such a society work, and I would be very nervous that it was going to wind up, in fact, just being ancient Athens with all of the problems that but it if, seems... If the, the contention, though, isn't it, that it's ancient Athens, it's all those societies, but with the drudgery jobs, the jobs that are needed to create enough resources to go around being done by machines, if that was done, do you still think paying people to do the other work is the most uh, efficient and effective way to create incentives for people to get out of bed in the morning? Or, you know, that seems to be what you're saying. I, th I think it's certainly going to help. It's certainly going to help figure out um, essentially where we put our resources because the reality is, you know, whether you're going to 
make films or or whatever it might be, you know, that does require capital and resources. And who's going to get that capital? Um, because I think it'll still be scarce one way or another. Um, you need some kind of system. And in effect, that's the question that that economics solves. You know, the central question that markets effectively solve is the allocation of scarce resources particularly capital and labour. Now, I suppose you're arguing that we're now in a world in which labour is no longer scarce, but, you know, we are potentially still in a world, I would guess, in which capital is well, effectively capital scarce. Well, capital is, it becomes so unequal. I guess the argument is that that market-driven world is a world which, you know, it had a lot of problems and has a lot of problems, but fundamentally it is legitimate for the majority of people. It's the best way or the best way we know to distribute resources through people's labour and through capital. But if AI is there providing endless supply of labor and human labor is devalued enormously, and if capital ends up in the hands of a small number of people, it stops being a legitimate system and you need the government to come in and say, okay, we either need to tax you know, the, the, the super wealthy at ridiculously high amounts, put massive tax on capital, but find other ways. And then it might um, create a a shift where we, we stop talking about unemployment as being the trampoline that gets you back into employment because the goal might not be employment. And I think that's the mental shift that um, I'm asking whether you think is, is conceivable, that we stop thinking about the goal being employment and then we shift to a world where we don't talk about unemployment, but we talk about our world of engagement and leisure, um, which we then need to be educated in. We need to uh, work out, you know, uh, how culturally we value a whole lot of things. And maybe people are paid for it. Maybe uh, Daniel Susskind talks about a conditional UBI where to get a UBI, universal basic income, you do need to contribute because you need to bring in questions of contribution. But are you prepared to conceive of a leap to a different way of organising society? I think it will be a lot harder than many people think right. it will be. Um, and, and I think the, the, the central question that I think got um, left in the, in the vision you just outlined is, so exactly who is allocating the scarce capital? And, and you know, we can't just say government yeah. uh, because government is ultimately a whole bunch of people. And then it begs the question about, well, exactly who and on what basis uh, and how do we do that? And, of course, one of the major reasons that we have markets is precisely yeah. to deal with that problem. But John, haven't hasn't the government hasn't the government just done that now? Um, you know, in in the last few months, with providing us with with income, uh, and they've stepped in in the place of the market. Haven't they just played that role? So they have for a, about a ten percent of the population, and in a way that um, is acknowledged by everybody in the system, completely unsustainable in the long run. Um, you know, it's about, it's leading to budget deficits of in the order of 10, 15% of GDP. You cannot afford to do that for more than a year or two. <laughs> uh, you know, you really will get hyperinflation and the whole thing falls apart if you keep doing that. You cannot, in fact, just print money. You right. can do it for a year um, right. because implicitly you're saying we're going to basically pay that back over the next you know, 15 or 20 years and spread over 15 or 20 years, that'll be yeah. fine. But you can't do it in perpetuity. I think for many people, there is a value that comes from self-reliance, that they say, you know, there is a pride in the fact, I earn this money, I'm not just kind of living off everything else. Um, 
And that appears to be very hardwired into our psyche. Now, look, maybe some people are, you know, sufficiently um, uh, broad-minded and generous that they kind of think of the world um, in another way. But for many people, the fact that I have at least some element of self-reliance, of course, I'm still part of a wider social structure and all that, but some element of self-reliance that I am, as it were, very obviously putting in as much as I am taking out, and that's represented by the income I get from my job, which is then matched by the consumption of spending the money that I earn, is um, psychologically really important to them. And we see that when people become unemployed. You know, that's the thing that they find really hard is that they don't have this validation that the stuff that they're doing is worth doing. If if being valued means earning money, having a job, having status related to it, feeling like you're contributing through that mechanism, is there a, a, a painting of a different society where people feel like they've contributed without having to earn a living? You know, what, what, what would that look like? Uh, paint, paint a vision of that society. Well, I think John's setting up a bit of a straw man in, in his um, view of what this looks like. And, and in a sense, it begs the question, unemployment only becomes a psychic burden when all the world expects you to be employed, to have a job in the traditional sense. And it's against that context that people judge themselves either to be adequate or inadequate, where they're looked down on, where they're treated as, you know, not deserving, you know, you, you hear you're a leaner rather than a lifter. All of this language comes in the context where the only good world is assumed to be a world in which there is maximum employment by people contributing. What this fails to understand is that it is possible to contribute to your society, to be acknowledged for that contribution and be rewarded for doing so in ways which are not dependent upon the traditional employment. And we know that because of the examples I gave earlier where people have made contributions so we shouldn't presume that because the world is the way it is today that it must be that forever in the future. I think what we have to do is to imagine a different system. Now, whether the market is the best way to do this, uh, I think is a, an interesting question. And I'm not even sure that the proposition I'm making in terms of the allocation of benefits and recognition of contribution is inimical to the market. The market might be a vital component in terms of the allocation of what's there beyond a certain basic level, which might be provided for. But we're going to have to reconcile ourselves with the fact that if you are a manufacturer in Australia today wanting to take advantage of opportunity in the world, you will go for the lowest cost opportunity that you can find in order to generate the greatest profit. So you'll minimise your inputs, maximise what you can charge. And in Australia, traditionally, the highest cost has been around things like labour you now have the opportunity to replace that labour. And when you do that, then society asks, well, we used to tax you a bit, but we'd also generated most of the tax, which is going to pay for a balanced budget eventually, from taxing people in jobs, in labour. That's the the larger part of our, our income. So what are we going to do when those people are simply not there? And I don't think we're going to find them um, in all of these other roles. So I think we still have to follow prudent economic policy in terms of balancing the books eventually. I'm not not proposing that people just print money, but I think that we rethink where the taxes are levied on the production, the productive capacity of our society, and that we build from that. And then that we look at what do we need to do to make every citizen able to make realistic choices to live a worthwhile life and never to be deemed in some senses 
surplus to what is good in society simply because they don't have an employed position. Now, there will always be some people, I think, who are in, in employment of some kind or another, but I think there are so many more creative ways we can think about our relationships with each other and our society that we are not yet exploring because we have these blinkers on at the policy level where, I mean, you just hear it in government pronouncements. Whenever they say, oh, we're going to go back to employment, that's our index, more and more jobs, 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 in complete defiance of the kind of things that Suskind and others have been referring to. I loved I loved that that those two words purposeful leisure. I found them actually quite personally challenging because I sort of I think I've imbibed too much of the Protestant work ethic, which is deserving leisure. Uh, well, you have to get over that, Lloyd. I, I know, I know, and I'm working on it. But any help you can provide this me, this podcast yeah, is an attempt to do such. We're not paid for this. <laughs> and it's ended up as a lot of it's ended up as a lot of work. What, what how, how do we get? How do we move from the sort of deep embedding in 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 you know in our society of this Protestant work ethic, where work matters? I mean, how do we get to this purposeful leisure? Well, I think first of all, we have many of the resources before us in this wonderfully diverse nation to which we all belong. Australia now, with its multiculturalism and particularly with its capacity to rediscover in its own history those earlier antecedents in Indigenous life, could think about what makes for our identity and our life on this continent mm. in a way which is different, that doesn't yeah. arise with Calvin and, you know, the Protestant um, work ethic and all the rest that comes from it. Uh, we have all of those things to think about if we take them seriously rather than just simply privileging a worldview which has been dominant on this continent for the last couple of hundred years. And I think what we discover, I mean, if you were to talk to people in the Mediterranean, uh, southern Mediterranean countries, they would often look at the notion of this, this idea of flogging yourself 8, 10, 12, 14 hours a day just so that you can have a few gasps of breath on the weekend is ridiculous. And I know when I was working in mining up on Groot Island um, with the Anandaliakwa people, they used to say, what's wrong with you people? You know, you, you, you're just working all this time when, you know, why don't you just do what you need to do and then sit back and engage in the things that really matter, like family and ceremony. So to John's point, they, they get to be more adaptive than, than a whole it's, batch it's, of it's other a, societies. It's about having an imagination <laughs> around what constitutes a good life, mm. what is legitimate in the way we live our lives, which is different to what has been the dominant narrative to, to the moment. Yeah. And once we change that thinking, then new possibilities will emerge which don't seem to be radical or invite friction. It will be more of an easy transition. So, well, yeah, why wouldn't we want to take all of this extraordinary product of human ingenuity in the form of our technology and liberate ourselves from the necessity of being, you know, flogging ourselves every day or having this job, if you want to be purposefully engaged in leisure, and, and, and I suppose, Lloyd, to help you think about this, there will be many people that you will meet who will tell you, even if they're employed, that if they love their job, it never feels like a day of work to them. Because right. they are purposefully yep. engaged in something which mm -hmm. they do if they could anyway. I, I wonder, John, whether these are two questions for you, you know, whether the people who are controlling society and making these decisions are often the people um, who who are maybe the rarer people who, who who just really do need very active and engaged work in order to have a sense of meaning. And so we, we tend to make those decisions um, on behalf of everybody. 
And then maybe there's a class thing. You know, Bertrand Russell said the idea that the poor should have leisure has always been shocking to the rich. How much of this is a, a way of us just, you know, of certain class of people ensuring that their values are pushed across a whole other class who maybe would see work as a way to get to leisure, not work as the centre of their life? Well, you've asked a very difficult question there, Emil, because um, uh, implicit is either one, uh, the rich are the people who derive a lot of pleasure from work uh, and don't think that the lower classes should have it, or alternatively, um, it's the other way around, yeah. that they just don't appreciate that the, the, mm, the, the lower mm, classes mm, like leisure. Mm, um, so I think there are two things that are worth keeping in mind here. The first of them is that um, I suspect much of the the... The, the pleasure, the well-being, the, the validation, whatever you want to, the self-worth that comes from working is partly because it comes from quite a complex social enterprise and people are part of that social enterprise and they find it very hard to imagine how such a complex social enterprise would um, function uh, if they were just doing it voluntarily. Yeah. You know, I don't think it's an accident that there are not very many complex organisations in which all of the participants are voluntary. Mm. It's just really hard to make that work. Oh, come on, but John, on the other think hand, about Saturday mornings and all of the thousands of people who take their children to sport and put it together. And I, I think that there, you know, the rural fire service, there, there are, I, I think we underestimate how much one can organise as largely volunteer-based, maybe not totally, but as largely volunteer-based things and the meaning and experience that it provides because people say... And I think the, the sport on Saturdays in schools is a classic example of that. So mm. I think you're right. We may well underestimate it and we may well fear it because of that, but I think it's an instinct. And I would also... But, but I'd also suggest, you know, there are a lot of very complicated... Um, if we think about... If we think about um, uh, employers, organising businesses, or, and for that matter, anyone, you know, government that pays its employees, you know, these are incredibly complex social enterprises. When you kind of pull apart, you know, all of the different roles that are involved and how they're specialised um, and how they relate to each other, they're extremely complex enterprises. And I think we certainly intuitively fear, maybe that fear is misplaced, but we intuitively fear um, whether we can make that work if it's voluntary. So I think that's one of the things that's going on here. Uh, and no doubt people who are involved in government kind of see those complex social enterprises more than others because um, government is probably the most complex social enterprise we have invested, we've invented. Um, uh, but, but I think it's certainly one of the fears that's going on here. It certainly is a massive fear. And how do we create the right incentives to contribute? What would it look like if I decided that I wanted to go and spend time looking after a sickly aunt uh, because she may not want a robot to look after her? Am I doing that, you know, and if I'm rewarded through some sort of conditional UBI or through some caring economy coin or through the traditional market or just I'm rewarded because I get a sense of status or gratitude, you know, these are all, in the, in the end, these are all just different mechanisms for trying to regulate what may end up being something that needs to be regulated. One thing, Simon, that does seem clear is that leaving it up to 
the sort of more technocrats, the economists to deliver this very clear and simple goal of more wealth, more jobs. Um, that is the aim. And then we can, you know, everyone in their own families can decide what's meaningful and valuable. That may come under um, a- attack and governments might need to start embracing a lot more questions about values and meaning uh, if they're going to be organising society outside of, of that, uh, you know, traditional system. And that is a really it's exciting in some ways, but I think it's incredibly scary as well. And we know that certain values can create a lot of problems. You could people have people could double down into identity, into racism. You know, you can have seemingly good values like modesty or chastity in the old days being used very oppressively. I think the role for philosophers and, and moral philosophers and uh, people of as such will probably increase as as you can't just rely on the more technocratic approach. How, are you scared of that world of like having this big mosh pit of people all trying to grapple with how to run a society when the mark, straight market forces can't be relied upon? No, I'm not scared of it. Um, I'm scared of us not thinking about it and just drifting into it. And I'm worried that governments will not have sufficient, if you like, ethical capital in the bank to be able to have a community trust them to help guide the really difficult choices that have to be made. I'm I'm worried about that. Because I think the kind of mosh pit that has a negative aspect to it will come if people are afraid of the future and, and feel that they're going to be sacrificed, that there'll be a disproportionate allocation of burdens to them and benefits to others. And that's where the resistance comes in in a way which confounds our hopeful expectations. And that is something that can be prevented if only we begin to talk about these things and start to have a, an, a real imagination about it. But if we can do that, if we can give people the degree of confidence that they're not being forgotten or sacrificed and all the rest, then I think the vitality of a rethinking of many of the institutions that we have and the role they play will be incredibly exciting and enriching. Um, I mean, economists, you know, go back to people like Adam Smith in these arguments about the market. He never argued that it was intrinsically good. It was a tool for increasing the stock of common good. He understood as a moral philosopher, which is his, his training, that there were certain goods for the human condition that could be better secured in his world by a genuinely free market. Love it. And there will be people who still defend that. But he had that larger vision of what a good society would be. And I think if we could get back and ask ourselves in a more open way, what is a good society? What is it that we look for so that each of us and our fellow citizens can flourish? And then with the technology before us, how can we imagine a way of relating to each other and organising everything from the economy to the care, way we care and all the rest? That, I mean, how exciting could that be? given the remarkable prospects before a country like Australia with its abundant resources, its potentially cheap, clean energy, its science, its technology, its educated people, its stable institutions. What a wonderful time to be if we could get that right. But it will only happen if we're brave enough to imagine that kind of future. That is probably a good summary. I don't know if John looks quite as excited as you do. There's a little bit of fear in his eyes. He's excited about there being endless work for moral philosophers. (laughs) (laughs) But let's shine a light a little bit at the principle of charity itself. So I probably, Simon and John, I I just want to get a feel for you. Um, how, how, How much are you both doing to look at the alternative viewpoints? 
to to your current views on AI? So I think there's two things that you have to do to really take this seriously. The first is that you have to be prepared to read lots of different things from lots of different places. Um, and I'm certainly pretty conscious about trying to sign up to to diff- and read um, different things from different places with people that I know have different points of view. Um, let's just say in preparing for this, uh, there was no shortage of things that I could find very, very quickly um, that were opposed to the point of view that I have on it. So um, uh, I think that's the first thing that one has to do and be prepared to click on the links from, you know, things that you're not necessarily going to agree with. Mm. Uh, and, and you know, it's also about staying in touch with lots of people who have different points of view. Does that come naturally to you or do you, do you have to sort of force yourself into that? I, I, I will confess it comes a bit naturally. Um, mm. I'm, um, I have a very short attention span. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I fit in the omnivore class. Right. Um, and then I think the second thing is I've, I would describe as um, – a personal ethic of uh, intellectual honesty. And that's Mm -hmm. really, really hard to breed. Um, uh, But I think it's absolutely essential. It's the little thing in the back of your mind that the whole time is saying you just might be wrong. That doesn't mean you think you are wrong. It means that you think you just might be. And therefore, you're all – I mean, I've only picked up in the last couple of days the way that – we are starting to see increasing unemployment levels, particularly amongst mm. lower education. You know, it's kind of unemployment is splitting much more along educational lines than it used to. Um, so you sort of put that in so your John, mind. So, John, you, you change your mind regularly, I'm going to assume, or not? No, I change my mind. I mean, hopefully, I make pretty good calls in the first place. So I don't mm. wind up changing it all that often. Mm. But there are things I have changed my mind on, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um because you learn more stuff. It's not necessarily that the facts change, as as, as mm. Keynes put it, but it's more that the information you have to hand and the analysis you have to hand changes, and that changes your view of the world. Now, I think we're all kind of a bit prone to confirmation bias. Wouldn't we? Yeah, I'm going to say that um, you know one of the principles of charity, one of them, is is seeking the truth and not winning the fight. So I'm going to I will make an assumption that that goes against some of the legal training. Um, so. Fantastic. <laughs> it was, it was, to be honest, it was one of the reasons I got out of the law. Interesting. It was precisely that I wasn't that interested in the victory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I can, uh, I can, I, and I interestingly, one of the best pieces of advice I got given by someone um, uh, from the American Enterprise Institute, as it so happens, um, when I started at Grattan, was that they defined their think tank as opposed to some competitors on the right wing of Australian poli- uh, US politics as that they sought truth and not victory. And that's always struck me as a as a really good aspiration for a think tank to, to say we are in the business of seeking truth, not victory. Simon, over to you. What what's do you do you have a discipline around looking at the alternatives to to your views on AI and I mean, I had to learn, I think, almost the hard way about this as a philosopher. So when I first went to Cambridge to do my graduate studies, my supervisor sat me down and said, there's only one rule here. And I said, what's that? He said, always go for the jugular. Hmm. And that that was a rule (laughs) in philosophy. And I'm really good at it. I mean, I was. I was incredibly good at going for the jugular. And then one day... I realised that I was betraying actually everything that philosophy was really about, at least mm. as I'd come to understand it, mm. and that mm. I'd become a bully 
mm. intellectual bully mm. and I was constantly trying to prove myself right and win my argument and that that was absolutely against the spirit of someone like Socrates who is the great person I admire mm. who even though he looks like a bit of a smarty pants when Plato presents him in the dialogues, was actually trying to get to the truth mm. because he genuinely didn't know. Mm. Mm. And then one of the greatest lessons for me was to find that it's almost pointless trying to change a person's mind, mm. that the only productive way to engage is to take them entirely seriously, mm. to really try and understand their worldview because often they'll tell you things then which you can bring to their attention which they might not have noticed as well as educating yourself. So that's a that's a thing that comes with maturity and I'm just old enough now to have absorbed those lessons and to have be very comfortable with that. So that's how I approach the whole world, not just a topic like this yeah. where I'm genuinely curious about those who hold a different view but not to the point where I'm bound to shackle my imagination. I still want to imagine what it all means when you put these things together and I'm I'm, I love finding patterns in arguments and mm. evidence and things of that kind. So the more I look for, the more interesting it is. So that, that's how I generally approach things beyond this particular topic. It's almost the better way to persuade people is, is, is your first step is, is to make sure that you understand them rather than sort of talk at them. Yeah, but you've got to do it without guile. See, the trouble is some people think, oh, well, what I'm going to do is listen to you, reframe your argument and then point out the areas. And that's full of guile because you're yeah. setting a trap. Yeah. You've got to be actually really curious. That's yes. the, key, mm. the key thing. Curious about what it is they have to say and then there may be some reframing so that they can say, yes, they've understood because a lot of people cannot let go of their need to promote or defend their position until they've been heard. And if they can just know they've been heard, then something else starts to happen in the conversation. But if you're there thinking, ah, I'm going to find the yep. tricky moment where there's a fault in this or curiosity, that. Curiosity is And no one point, will actually... There's something you can't fake it. Yeah, I, I think curiosity is the best you thing. You can't pretend to be but curious. But curiosity, I assume, you know, it's, it's interesting listening to both of you um, that I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Philip Tetlock's work on super forecasting, um, where he actually shows how, how experts uh, regularly get it wrong. And 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 one of the one of the reasons they regularly get it wrong is because they're overly confident, and the experts, mm. who, the, the the super forecasters, meaning the people who actually do get it right, just have that basic uh, dimension, which I think both you know both of you are talking about, is that ability to doubt, the ability to listen, the ability to almost have that concept of the beginner's mind. Uh, which is curious, which is so core to the principle of charity. So from my side, thank you to, to, to both of you. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure having uh, both of you on. Thank you both so much. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.